0: everyone. About 10 years ago, the New York Times reported something unusual happening in Manhattan. Two women, Laura Barnett and Sandra Spannon, invited people walking by on the streets to unburden their souls. So Mrs. Barnett would get the attention of someone passing by and then she would point them to the words hanging on their storefront, air your dirty laundry 100% confidential, anonymous, free. And then she would hand them a blank sheet of paper on which to write And and, and hundreds of people, including executives and street people and couriers and secretaries and shoppers and joggers, would pause and they would write down their sins and secrets and hand it back to Laura Barnett. Uh, Once the person was out of sight down the sidewalk, the message then was taped to the glass for all to see. And some of them were silly, others were terrible. Confessions from things like, you know, the hermit crab was still alive when I threw it down the trash chute, and, and like, I wanna see every SUV explode was one of them, <laughs> to, to, you know, I'm dating a married man and getting financial compensation in exchange for the guilt that I carry. And so this little storefront experiment re- revealed a lot of things, but the inescapable fact that surfaced across all generations, across all income levels and social standings, was that a lot of people are hiding. <laughs> They're hiding from the the police, they're hiding from their parents, from coaches and from teachers, from bosses. They're hiding from spouses. And a whole lot of people are trying to hide their actions and emotions actually from God himself. And that's what we're addressing this month. We're learning how to bear even our rawest emotions to God in prayer. Instead of the typical fight or flight or freeze, we instead bring these emotions directly to God. And to instruct us, we're using this amazing ancient prayer guide in the Bible called the Psalms to help give us language and to to use uh, patterns that we can follow. So the first week we looked at how to pray through fear and last week praying through pain. And today I wanna take us down to a different emotion. I wanna talk about praying through guilt. Now, guilt is a very negative word in our culture. We think of things like guilt trip, or guilty by association, or pleading guilty, or having a guilty conscience, all very negative. In fact, I tried to do some online searches about guilt this week, even putting a positive spin on it like good guilt or guilt can be good for you. And all the top searches uh, from the top psychological websites were still dominated by article headlines like uh, how to get rid of your guilt, how to get out of a guilt spiral, how to stop feeling guilty. And it seems like the only thing everyone wants to do with guilt is to try to get rid of it as quickly as possible. But what if there's a good side to guilt? I just want to go on a small little campaign here to bring be- bring guilt back into our good graces. I believe that guilt can be a helpful emotion, not as an ongoing companion, but as a short-term red flag raiser. And part of the reason guilt is so unpopular these days is because it points us to an even more unpopular reality called sin. And sin can disor- disorient the best of us. And we've seen culturally like these huge swings b- between permissiveness where like everybody just engage in every unspeakable act, and, and at the same time, almost schizophrenically, we're, we're going to blame and judge and cancel and guilt trip everyone for everything. And it's a strange time we live in. Uh, but, but I wanna make a case for a return to a very simple construct that says, yes, I am sinful, yes, I feel guilt over that sin, and I have somewhere to go with with that, where I can find redemption and change and forward motion again for my life, which leads us to today's big idea. Bringing your guilt to God moves you out of your past and into your future. Because if not dealt with properly, guilt can be like this heavy baggage that you carry from one season of life to the next. Like we've all done things for which we have deep regrets, But, but some of you are really stuck there like that guilt comes with you into every relationship, into every job, every role, every church. Like you sit there under the weight of it and you think there's no way God could forgive me. There's no way God could use me. And you probably relate to these words of David when he said in Psalm 38:4, My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. Now, as I said earlier, there, there is such a thing, I believe, as good guilt. It's important to us like physical pain can be important to us, like the pain of touching a hot stove is a signal to the body to remove your hand. Well, guilt can be a similar warning sign emotionally. You sinned, you did wrong, and now there's guilt. That's how it's supposed to work. It's a red flag that alerts us that something needs our attention. But when guilt is not dealt with biblically, it can become a paralyzing force in our lives. And some of you have been carrying around guilt for years and you've never had 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 to look at it, like you've never dealt with it properly, you've never dealt with it biblically. Instead, maybe you've drifted toward one of these, what I would call failed strategies for dealing with guilt. I wanna point out a few. The first is denial, like you just hide it. You, You might admit that this was something that you had trouble with in the past but not anymore, like you're denying it. I'm sure some of you possess secrets that you don't want anyone to know about. And so they, they come and they, you know, you put on your plastic Christian smile and you carry your Bible with the naked baby angels on the front and you act like you have it all together, but it's really denial. Another failed strategy is comparisons. This is where you focus your attention on the, the, the spectacular sinners around you to convince yourself that you're in the top one-third of morality in your class and surely God grades on a curve because you're certainly not nearly as bad as Stalin and Hitler and the idiots that you know at work and across the street. Another improper way of dealing with, with this is, is rationalization. Like you explain why your sin is not really that bad. It's not really hurting anyone. It's such a small thing. Like everybody's doing it. It's 2023, man. Don't you know what, what it's like out there in the real world? Or, or I can't help it. My, my desires are too strong. Or I was born this way. You just rationalize. Another failed strategy is Blame. Bro, you'd sin too if you came from the home I came from or if you had the boss that I have or if you lived with the husband that I live with or if you experienced the hurt that I experienced. Don't blame me, it's not my fault. This one goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God came, remember, to, to Adam and he and it confronts him about his sin and Adam says, well, that woman that you gave me, like she made me do it. And in that one statement, Adam is blaming the only two other people standing there. The woman that you gave me. And so God looks over at the woman and she says, it's the snake. And so blame is a strategy that is planted deep in our sin nature DNA that goes way, way back. But the last failed strategy for dealing with guilt may be the most damaging of all. It's, it's reinventing God. So people will say things like, well, my God doesn't condemn or my God is not a punishing God. He's, a, he's only a loving God. My God would never judge anything I do. And so to deal with their guilt, people will create a new version of God, a feel-good God, a God that you can stand before and not tremble. But this is not the God of the Bible, you see. And some of you have tried these failed strategies, and as a result, you've given up on the whole thing. You've, you've committed some disabling sin somewhere in your past, and you just reach the conclusion that where, you, where you say, you know, I guess this is it. I guess this is as far as I get to go. I guess I'm now disqualified from anything of real significance in the kingdom. I'm disqualified from anything of real meaning for my life. Instead of moving on from sin and and failure to new heights and to new places with God, you just stay stuck and, and disabled by your guilt. As we've been saying all month, there's a better way. And so will you go with me to Psalm 51? And as you're getting there, I'm gonna give you some of the backstory. This is another one of those Psalms which I'm so grateful for. It gives us a historical setting in which it was written. And the historical setting is this. It says, a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Very, very specific. Now, the original story can be found over in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. It's a story of lust and adultery and deception and murder and cover-up. Sounds like it should be the latest Hulu series. It's about a king who sees a beautiful woman, another man's wife, and he wants her, and he sends for her, and she comes to him, and he has sex with her, and then, then he has her husband killed so that he can take her as his wife, you know, on a day's work. And so now we have David, who's supposedly a man after God's own heart, who, who, who now has adultery and murder on his resume. And to be clear, this, this was not a sin of impulse. David wasn't just caught up in his circumstances beyond his control, he, he had planned and plotted to carry out this sin. He had put great effort into concealing it, that this was calculated, this was cunning, and frankly, it would have been socially acceptable in the ancient world for a king to do something like this, except for one sticky little detail. David was a servant of God. David was a man of God, and there's a different standard with the God of the Bible, that this king Served a higher authority than himself. And so we, we read in 2 Samuel 11:29, this comes into focus. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. And so into the story comes Nathan a very brave man who has the guts to speak truth to power, to call out the king. He confronts David with his own sin and suddenly the word of God comes to bear and David is confronted and he has to do the hardest thing any of us can ever do, come face to face with his own sin. And he says these six crucial words that set really the restoration process in motion. 2 Samuel 12, 13 says, I have sinned against the Lord. David's pain run deep runs deep, and, and through his fears and, and through his deep guilt, realizing at last how wrong he had been, King David sits down and he writes the song that we now call Psalm 51. It's like we get to peek into David's personal journal as he spills his guts out to God. David discovered that you can't silence a guilty conscience by ignoring it or rationalizing or blaming or comparing. You, you, you bring it to God in prayer. And 3,000 years later, we again look to Psalm 51 because it tells us what it means to come back to God after we have sinned and to pray through our guilt with Him. The psalm reveals David's folly and, and restoration. It is the psalm of the changed heart. And maybe this psalm relates to your story today. I'm thankful for passages like this because it's a stark reminder that the very best of us fail that like David, we all have something that we deeply regret, that that we're deeply ashamed of or embarrassed about. And maybe you're wondering this morning, how how will I ever recover? Like, how can I ever erase the guilt? How will I find the courage and strength to deal with the consequences? Has God written me off? Well, Psalm 51 is here to remind us that we're all caught (laughs) red-handed, like no matter how well we've camouflaged our sin. But he also shows us what happens after he blew it. He was confronted by Nathan. And now, like the people at the storefront in Manhattan, David writes out his private confession. But unlike those anonymous confessions to no one, David offers his to God. And his prayer marks out for us three heart cries that I believe can lead us towards spiritual recovery. And so as we've been doing, let's go to school on this Psalm, not only to instruct us, but to provide a model for us, maybe even some specific language for us, to help us pray through our own guilt. And so here are three heart cries as you pray through guilt. The first heart cry is this, forgive me. This is a deep and personal cry. And so you look at Psalm 51, the first six verses. It says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Now, I want you to notice a few things about David's cry for forgiveness. First, let me just say that the Bible's a very strange book about religious texts, uh, among all the religious texts. Like, just go back and and read some of the ancient holy books of the Greeks and the Romans and the Norse, and just look at how they portray their heroes, and it's not like this. The the, the Bible is camping out here on the deep remorse over over the failures of one of the, the ancient Israel greatest heroes. And the Bible also does this with Peter and Moses. It does this with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Do you know why? It's because of one, uh, one of the, the foundational truths that the Bible is establishing over and over again is that you and I are sinners. We, we are in need of redemption. And part of the point here is that if someone as great as David is capable of this kind of folly, what does that say about you and me? And I, and I mention this now because if you don't understand that, that sin is what we're up against, like none of the rest of this about our need for forgiveness is going to make any sense whatsoever. So right out of the gates, we see the source of David's hope, what what, what he's relying on in verse 1. He says it again and again. It's God's mercy, God's steadfast love, God's abundant mercy, that the sole basis of David's plea for forgiveness is the mercy of God. He's not relying on his past accomplishments. He's not promising a future act of penance or some gold stars that he's going to earn at church. He's smart enough to know that his only shot is the mercy of God. And so that's his only hope. But that being said, notice what David does next in verse two, he takes full responsibility for his sin. No blame shifting, no hiding, no the devil made me do it. He says, cleanse me from my sin. And then verse three, my transgressions, and then my sin is ever before me. He's owning his sin, all of it. And he's bringing what we would call a confession to God. This word confession means to speak the same thing Confession isn't saying you're sorry. It's not feeling sad about what you did. It's agreeing with God about what happened. It's seeing your sin how God sees it. You know how relieving that is? Like, have you ever been in an argument with your spouse or with a family member, and they they do or say something really stupid, and, and, and you know that they don't get how much it hurt you? Maybe they even say, I'm sorry, and that helps a little bit, but not much, because you know deep down that they still don't get it. But if they finally get to a place where they verbalize what they did and they acknowledge how it must have made you feel, that's confession. It's what David is doing here. It's agreeing together. But he's also in the process of something else called repentance. Now, I have a hunch that what a lot of people think is repentance in our day is actually remorse, and those two things are very different. Remorse is feeling bad about what happened. And often it's selfish. I feel bad about the mess it caused. I feel bad about the negative consequences for me. But repentance is turning around and walking the opposite direction from your sin. We need less remorse for sin and we need more repentance from sin. There's an interesting passage over in 2 Corinthians 7.10. Paul says it this way. He says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Worldly sorrow only bemoans getting caught. It only weeps for what was lost. It never grieves for the wrong committed. But godly sorrow produces different results. When we experience godly sorrow, we are deeply grieved for the wrong we committed. And we desire to ask forgiveness, to repair the damage, to make reparation for the harm done. Not merely to protect ourselves from pain or or, or regain what we didn't want to give up. In a word, we repent. See, true guilt gets us up on our feet and motivates us to do the right thing. And so we see here David's model of breaking free from the guilt of the past. It's leaning on God's mercy and then taking full responsibility for your sin in confession and repentance. The time for excuses is over. As long as you make excuses, you will not experience forgiveness because you will not come clean about your sin. If you're constantly justifying your sin, you're actually blocking the cleansing work of God's forgiveness for you. But there's one more thing that I I want you to see in this first section. Look at verse 4. He says, Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, you may think, well, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? I mean, the dead guy might have something to say about being sinned against. (laughs) But, But this is a very important truth for us to internalize. All sin is a sin against God first. See, David starts contemplating, wait, why did I need that feeling of power? Why did I run to Bathsheba as a refuge? Why did I crave Bathsheba's beauty? Why did my soul have this incredible draw toward her? And then he, he just begins to acknowledge, I needed her arms, God, because I did not have yours. I craved her beauty, God, because I was no longer captivated by your beauty. I did well, whatever it took to, to make her mine because I hadn't fully made you mine, God. You see, all of our sin starts as a fracturing in our relationship with God. We're not satisfied with what God has given us or, or we don't trust God to take care of us. And so we go, around, we, go, we, we go around him, we go outside of his boundaries to get what we want. Isn't that why you're jealous? Jealous, for example. Like, you look at what God has given you, and you think, well, that's not enough. (laughs) And so you start looking around at what everyone else has. You look at somebody else's car, somebody else's girlfriend, somebody else's job, or their looks, or their talents. You say, well, I wish I had that. And in that moment, you're saying, God, I don't trust what you gave to me, and I'm not satisfied with you and your plan. I'm not content in your provision for me. So I'm going to go around it, and I'm going to get what I want. See, all sin, even sin against other people, is first a sin against God. And so David's first cry is, God, forgive me. But he knows that it can't just stop at forgiveness. He begs God for for more. He begs God for a deep work to cleanse him from the stain of sin. It's the second heart cry as you pray through guilt. It's cleanse me And in verses 7 through 12, David is going to say things like purge me, wash me, clean me. All of these words implying a thorough scrubbing. Picture a mother with her child trying to get that child clean. David starts pleading for more than just forgiveness or renewal. He's pleading to be truly changed by God. Not just a surface cleaning, but a deep cleaning. Because David understood that, God, I don't just need you to forgive me. I need you to cleanse me, to scrub me up, to make me different inside. Now, this is not an easy prayer to pray. In fact, it's very hard. I heard a story one, one time of a teacher uh, who was ex- exploring her students' knowledge of some well-known proverbs. And she asked the class, she, she started it, she said, cleanliness is next to what? And they paused for a minute, and a small boy in the back finally raised his hand, and he said, impossible. <laughs> That's pretty accurate. Cleanliness is next to impossible. Now, I think there's something really instructive about how specific David gets about this cleansing. And so I want to walk you through this next section, phrase by phrase. And as we go, I wanna point out to you seven promises of spiritual cleansing that David refers to in this next section. The first promise is that God will cleanse you with his blood. This is really incredible foreshadowing, this rich imagery in verse seven. It says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. What is hyssop? Well, well, you've probably seen versions of this plant around, but in the ancient world, a few stalks of these flowers would be banded together and used to sprinkle or spread blood on something as a way of showing cleansing or anointing. Now, there are two major applications where hyssop was used in the Bible. One was at the Passover during the Exodus when the people dipped hyssop into the blood of the sacrificed animals, and they applied that blood to the altar and the doorposts over their houses. The other use was when someone had an infectious disease like leprosy or maybe a family who was coming to look for purification, the priest would use hyssop to sprinkle blood on that person to to heal them. So David's saying, that's what I need to be rescued. Now, now I realize that all this blood offends some of our modern sensibilities. Some of you would prefer a bloodless solution. That's not what we have here. Here what we have is, I think, the significance of what God wants us to see. I believe that he wants us to see that there's a cost to forgiveness. For example, if I forgive you a debt, it doesn't just vanish, I assume the payment. If you come to my house and you break one of my lamps and I forgive you the debt, that payment doesn't just go away, but what happens is instead of you, I'm saying that I will assume the cost to replace the lamp, but there's still a cost. Now this is harder to imagine when it comes to the costliness of sin. And so the ancient object lesson was meant to instill this lesson into God's people that while forgiveness is free, it's not cheap. It requires sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. And of course, it was all just a preview. It was all just a shadow of what was to come. The grievousness of our sins has led to only one solution, only one payment that would satisfy Jesus' own life. Sin could not be cured And cleansing could not be achieved by anything but the shedding of his blood. And so we're reminded here in Psalm 51.7 of the promise of the gospel, that cleansing will only be accomplished through the incredible sacrifice. So David presents himself as we must do, as one in need of healing, whose only chance is through the blood that he says will wash us whiter than snow. Here's the second promise. It's that God will renew your hope. Look at verse eight, he says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. And so after Nathan came to David, David had no joy. He was forced to recognize his sin and the coming death of his son as a consequence for that sin. And now David pleads for joy. He pictures God's judgment as the crushing of his bones. But he has a sense that that judgment and the consequences of sin will actually be turned into hope. Anybody need hope today? It comes with the cleansing work of God's forgiveness. The third thing is that God will remove your sins. Verse nine says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. The amazing promise here is that more than just forgiving us, God has also put our sins far away from us. Otherwise, our sins will rise up to accuse us again and again through a guilty conscience. They'll keep us awake at night, but he's removed them from us. Next, God will restructure your desires. Look at verse 10. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This is pretty incredible. Like a lot of people think that Jesus works like one of those miracle diet pills that the infomercials promised back in the 80s. (laughs) They they, they basically said, you know, oh, you ate a big pile of loaded cheese fries? No problem. (laughs) Take this pill and it'll cancel all of that out. People treat Jesus like that, like a diet pill for sin. That's a terrible metaphor. Here's a more accurate one. Imagine if you could take a pill that would not just counteract the cheese fries, (laughs) but would change your whole attitude toward food and exercise. Like it changed your desires from fries into the love of broccoli at night, you'd be like, well, well I, I could watch TV and eat chips, but I just don't feel like that at all. You know what I, what I am really craving right now is a few sets of Pilates. So, so the pill like changed your desires. It made you love what you should love and hate what you should hate. A clean heart and a right spirit is a spiritual restructuring of your desires. Cleansing will begin to attune your desires to the heart and mind of God. The next promise in verse 11 is that God will renew the Holy Spirit's power. He says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And so with cleansing comes this restored closeness to the presence of God through the Spirit of God. Now he says in 12a, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. It's the sixth promise that God will restore your joy. David is remembering the times from earlier in his life when his relationship with God was tight, and he's saying, well, when I had that awareness of your salvation, the, the, the word I would use to describe myself is joyful. Now that I've wandered from you, I don't have that joy. And so as part of my cleansing renewal, God, will you restore that joy to me? And the last promise of spiritual cleansing is this, God will give you new desires it's in the second part of verse 12, David says, uphold me with a willing spirit. He, he, he means, make me glad to obey you in the future. He begs God to do some divine heart surgery so that he'll never stray from the right path again. Now, now listen to these promises again that go along with God's cleansing power. We said that God will cleanse you with his blood, God will renew your hope, God will remove your sins, God will restructure your desires, God will renew the Holy Spirit's power, God will restore your joy and God will give you new desires. Is that anyone's heart's cry today? We said, God cleanse me, God cleanse me, God cleanse me so that this might be true of me. So the first heart cry as you pray through guilt is forgive me, that's confession. The second heart cry is cleanse me, that's cleansing. And the third heart cry is the cry of consecration that says use me. We look at verse 13 with me. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. What's happening here? Well, he says after all of this in verse 13, he says, I will teach transgressors your ways. You, you, guys, your sin and your guilt does not disqualify you from the work of God in this world. Sometimes people think that because of their past, they're just sidelined from from doing God's work for the rest of their lives. This couldn't be further from the truth. And here we see David saying, I'm I'm gonna leverage this process of sin and restoration for the good of others. And this is so important because when you've been through something like this, one of the most healing things that you can do is to get back in the game. And one of the best ways to do that is just to tell the story of your sin and, and God's forgiveness. Like there's tremendous power in your story. Declare to others how God rescued you in your moment of helplessness and desperation. Talk openly of how you despaired of ever finding peace with God and then Jesus found you and he lifted you up and he forgave your sins and he gave you new life and he set your feet in a new direction. Share that from your heart And people will listen because there's nothing as convincing as the simple truth of a changed life. You don't have to give a theology lesson or an intro to Christian apologetics. Just tell the story of how Jesus rescued you and restored you. Because guess what? People can't argue with that. They can argue with your politics. They can argue with your interpretation of one of the finer points of biblical theology. But they can't argue with what Jesus has done in you. And so forgiven people that they don't keep their story to themselves, that there's someone in your life who would benefit from hearing yours. But there's a second thing that David points us to here. It's a renewed commitment to worship. In verse 15 he says, I will sing aloud of your righteousness. And David never forgot his sin or the grace that that found him in the midst of his despair. His lips were shut until grace like a river came pouring down from heaven, and then he would not be silent anymore. Truly forgiven people, you see, tell others what God has done for them, and they worship God with all their might. Now, we're gonna conclude with these last two verses, 16 and 17. He says, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burned offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. So so, so David is getting at the the core heart of the matter. He's not knocking the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. He's just getting to the motivation of it all. He's saying, when we're guilty before God, we don't just go through the motions of sacrifice and then walk away unchanged. In our day, we we don't just read Psalm 51 to God like that's going to do the trick and then just go back to the business as usual with our old sins. He's painting a picture of the kind of posture with God this ongoing, this life-consuming posture that says, you are God and I am not. And I acknowledge that, God. And you deserve the very best of me, God. And so I come into your presence. And when I walk away from your presence, I walk away differently because of who you are and what you've done for me. And so we come to God praying these three cries of our hearts, forgive me and cleanse me and use me. And we walk away changed and transformed Some of you today are stuck in a cycle of guilt and shame. And my invitation to you is to throw yourselves onto the mercy of God. You don't have to keep punishing yourself again and again. You don't have to stay on the hook for that thing that happened in your past. We come across adulterous murderers like David who provide us a roadmap like Psalm 51 that that gives us all hope because it reminds us that when We were all desperate for grace. Grace was extended to us. And that most powerful of all forces, the forgiveness of God, goes into effect and removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. It's powerful enough to get you out of your past and onto your future. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Your host is going to come now and walk you through a time of practicing praying through guilt. And then at our physical locations, we're going to share communion together. I love you guys.